The New York Historical Society recently introduced a must-listen-to podcast called For the Ages, exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped the American story. Past conversations have included Pulitzer Prize winner Robert Caro, offering a first-hand perspective on his writing process, Ron Chernow, on his biography of Hamilton, and his involvement with the musical. Award-winning author Lillian Faderman discussing the history of the LGBTQ plus civil rights movement, which continues to this day. H.W. Brands on John Brown and Lincoln, the Zealot and the Emancipator. Joanne Freeman on violence in Congress leading up to the Civil War through the eyes of journalist Benjamin Brown French. And New York Times chief White House correspondent Peter Baker on the life and legacy of James Baker, one of the most influential power brokers in American history. That's For the Ages from David M. Rubenstein and the New York Historical Society. Available on Apple and Spotify, new episodes every week. Before we begin, let's hear from Dorothy Parker herself. Resume. Razors pain you, rivers are damp. Acids stain you, and drugs cause cramp. Guns aren't lawful, nooses give, gas smells awful. You might as well live. Mrs. Parker was not only the wittiest writer of the Jazz Age, she was also obscenely morbid. Her most successful verse often veered into somber moods, loaded with thoughts of self-destruction or wry despair. Her talents rose at a very receptive moment for such a dour outlook, after the First World War and right as the country went dry. Dorothy Parker's greatest lines are as bracing and intoxicating as a hard spirit. No wonder she was so droll and morose. In fact, she frequently quipped about the epitaph that would someday grace her tombstone. Excuse my dust, was one she suggested in Vanity Fair. In the end, they opted for something a bit more elegant. Leave for her a red young rose. Go your way and save your pity. She is happy, for she knows that her dust is very pretty. Those words, etched upon a handsome gravestone, were placed over her remains at Woodlawn Cemetery in a festive and musical ceremony befitting a figure of the Roaring Twenties. It was also her birthday. Among the crowd none of whom Dorothy had actually known, were a couple impersonators of the writer, actresses in glamorous flapper costumes. Following the ceremony, the attendees piled into the cemetery trolley to her gravesite, where many produced flasks full of gin and drank to her memory. This all would have been a strange enough sight in the late spring of 1967 when Dorothy Parker died in a city of strife and protest. But the ceremony did not take place in 1967. In fact, Dorothy Parker was not interred within Woodlawn Cemetery until the late summer of the year 2020. 
and she would not have that much remarked upon tombstone until the following year. What remained of Dorothy Parker had finally completed a very strange journey. The Bowery Boys episode 380, Dorothy Parker's Last Party. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And Greg, you know this. I'm just dropping by to say hello because (laughs) today's show features you and a very special guest. Yes. But before we get the show rolling here, Tom Mm -hmm. just wanted to share a little news that might help explain some of his recent absences. (laughs) Yes, I have been transported for the past few months into the (laughs) world of the Gilded Age. In fact, as our patrons and our followers on social media already know, for the past few months, I've been recording the official podcast for the new HBO series, The Gilded Age, a show that is set in New York in the 1880s, and I'm co-hosting that show with Alicia Malone from TCM. And the show has already debuted on HBO and HBO Max, and people can already start listening to the podcast, right? Yes, indeed. Just search for the official Gilded Age podcast. There's so much on the show, obviously, that should interest Bowery Boys listeners, as I'll be doing my best to help give the TV series some historical context. Because on the show and on the podcast, we go all over New York in 1882, the year that the show is set. And on the podcast, we also interview cast members and members of the production team to talk about creating the Gilded Age. I can't believe the people, the big names that you were talking to. You couldn't even tell me at the time. No, it was so top secret. But on this very first episode, Alicia and I actually interviewed one of the show's biggest stars, Christine Baranski, and the show's creator, Julian Fellows. Well, I love Ms. Baranski, of course, and mm-hmm. Julian Fellows from Downton Abbey. Mm-hmm. Let me put on my Dame Maggie Smith voice. How interesting. <laughs> uh, but seriously, it sounds so fun. Mm-hmm. But as a result, you'll be kind of back and forth between here and there for just a little while longer. Yes, you and I have another Bowery Boys episode uh, that we're taping together very soon, but then I'll be back in my full capacity as a Bowery Boy in April. But you have so many Bowery Boys surprises that are coming up on the show in the meantime, and I just can't wait to hear them, including, of course, today's topic, Dorothy Parker. Thank you, Greg, for waiting until I've stepped aside temporarily to finally (laughs) do Dorothy Parker as a show, you scoundrel scoundrel you cad um yes uh, dorothy parker the writer the critic and hollywood screenwriter famous for her classic wit on the pages of vanity fair and the new yorker among other places a woman who defined a certain spirit of the jazz age a time when many women broke out of old restrictions in demeanor and fashion Dorothy Parker, of course, was the most famous member of the Algonquin Roundtable, a famous lunchtime gathering of writers and personalities who helped elevate the written word. And we did record an entire show on the Roundtable and its many witty personalities. That's episode number 223. But today's show will present a very, very different side to Dorothy Parker, one that I don't think people often remember or even know about, a side of social activism and political engagement. 
And it's her actions in this capacity that set in motion a very strange set of circumstances. This is actually also starting to sound a bit mysterious. Because it is so unusual, Tom. Allow me to start at the end. Dorothy Parker died in her apartment at the Volney Hotel on the Upper East Side on June 7th, 1967, next to a loving companion, a poodle named Troy. Parker had given the moment of her passing much thought over the years, often with the hue of dark humor, unsettling all but her closest friends. According to author Marion Mead, quote, some years earlier, she had told a friend that somebody ought to build a chute connecting the Volney with Frank Campbell's funeral home a few blocks away on Madison Avenue, unquote. Dorothy died while the world was focused on the Six-Day War in the Middle East. Her obituary in the New York Times, Dorothy Parker, 73, literary wit, dies, ran next to satellite photographs of the Sinai Peninsula. Quote, the sardonic humorist who pervade her wit in conversation, short stories, verse, and criticism died of a heart attack yesterday afternoon. In print and in person, Ms. Parker sparkled with a word or a phrase, for she honed her humor to its most economical size. The newspapers reduced her legacy to its sharp edges. Quipmaster Dorothy Parker dies, declared the San Francisco Examiner. Other phrases which made the headlines, the wittiest of women, rapier's sweet sheath, the wit of a cobra, the woman who pricked society's balloons, and my favorite from the AP, Dorothy Parker dies without comment. She had expressly stated in her will that she was to be cremated and that there'd be no funeral service. These wishes were perhaps inspired by a fear of being forgotten. One year earlier, in the Paris Review, she spoke of her friend F. Scott Fitzgerald. Quote, when he died, no one went to the funeral. Not a single soul came or even sent a flower. I said, poor son of a bitch. A quote right out of The Great Gatsby, and everybody thought it was another wisecrack. But it was said in dead seriousness. Unfortunately for Dorothy Parker, she had put her dear friend and occasional rival, Lillian Hellman, in charge of her affairs. The award-winning playwright of The Little Foxes had been friends with Dorothy Parker since the early 1930s and had taken care of some of Parker's necessities in her final days. But Hellman dismissed her friend's final wishes and held a small funeral for Parker anyway, you guessed it, at Frank Campbell's funeral home. The funeral home of the stars, they sometimes say. According to Marion Mead, quote, The slapdash service lasted about as long as it took a motorist to pass through a car wash. Parker was not forgotten. More than a hundred literary and theatrical notables crammed themselves into the small chapel where Parker was on display wearing a brocade caftan. Punctuated by a mournful violin playing Bach, the service featured two speakers. The first was Lillian Hellman herself. According to Hellman in her memoir, Dorothy said to me, I quoted this at her funeral and found it to my pleasure, as it would have been hers, 
Lily, promise me that my gravestone will carry only these words. If you can read this, you've come too close. In fact, Parker probably didn't say this, and Hellman is actually quite famous for misremembering and straight-up fabricating a whole lot of things. But no matter. The second speaker that day was Fiddler on the Roof star Zero Mostel, who said, quote, It was Dorothy's express wish that there be no formal or informal ceremonies at all. If she had her way, I suspect she would not be here at all. Hellman disregarded Parker's wishes, but Dottie, as she was called, would have the last laugh. After the funeral, Dorothy Parker's will was read, determining the fate of her estate, including any copyrights and royalties from her writings. Hellman expected some compensation from the document. And while Parker did not have children, she did have other relatives, including a loving niece and nephew. So a great many people were stunned that day when her will was made public and Dorothy Parker had bequeathed her estate to a man she never met. To those who thought of her only as a quipmaster with the wit of a cobra, her decision would come as a surprise, but not to those who knew her best. For alongside the droll and seemingly detached writer was another very different Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Rothschild was born on August 22, 1893. Her father, J. Henry Rothschild, a German-Jewish cloakmaker, settled the family in a fine home on the growing Upper West Side. Her Scottish mother, Eliza, died when Dorothy was a young girl, and her father's second wife, Eleanor, ensured that Dorothy would be properly educated as a Catholic. Her prim, upper-middle-class upbringing was indeed a stark contrast to the thousands of young Jewish girls who lived on the Lower East Side. According to Mead, in her biography of Parker, What Fresh Hell Is This? Quote, Every Christmas Eve, it was the habit of her father to ride to the streets of the Lower East Side in his coach. In his lap lay a stack of white envelopes, each containing a crisp new $10 bill. These tips he distributed to the neighborhood police officers. Her somber and rebellious outlook as a teen and her desire for independence drew her to poetry, where she could mock hoity-toity society as she did in her poem, Any Porch, which was published in the magazine Vanity Fair shortly after her 21st birthday. She was paid $12. More importantly, it was a foot in the door of the male-dominated magazine world. A few months later, Vanity Fair editor Frank Crowninshield helped Dorothy get a job at another magazine recently acquired by his boss, Condé Nast. That magazine was Vogue. Even as she wrote with a twisted gaze about such frivolities as negligee, she continued to submit articles to Crown and Shield's Vanity Fair. She nailed the magazine's spirit, what Robert Benchley later called, quote, the elevated eyebrow school of journalism. You can say anything you want, as long as you say it in evening clothes. 
By 1917, Dorothy had switched over to Vanity Fair, where she worked alongside Benchley, a writer and critic with whom she would grow closely attached. Benchley, Parker, and another writer, Robert Sherwood, would become an extraordinary literary trio, an occasional terror for editors and publishers. In 1918, Parker became the magazine's theater critic, in fact, New York's only female theater critic at the time. And it was in this role that she developed her remarkable writing style, perceptive, hilarious, and fearless. New Yorkers loved her fiery takedowns. Broadway producers decidedly less so. In the end, commerce prevailed over criticism. And in 1920, Crown and Shield sat Parker down at the Plaza Hotel and fired her. Robert Benchley, in protest, quit the next day. It was the job termination heard round the world, or at least round cafe society. The previous summer, the New York Times critic Alexander Walcott had begun inviting a group of writers, critics, actors, and others from the theatrical world for lunch at a hotel on West 44th Street called The Algonquin. So many literary lights passed through those doors to those festive luncheons that management moved Walcott and his parties to a large round table in the hotel's Rose Room. Soon, that gathering would include Robert Benchley, Robert Sherwood, and Dorothy Parker. This was the era before television and the very earliest years of radio. Newspaper publishers were celebrities, and newspaper columnists were the prime commentators and jesters of the age. Soon, there were so many talented people around Algonquin's roundtable that the columnists around the table mused about these gatherings in their own columns. The most read of these columns was probably The Conning Tower, a syndicated newspaper column written by Franklin P. Adams, or FPA. Adams, Wolcott, and others wrote of Dorothy Parker's dismissal from Vanity Fair and of Benchley's subsequent resignation. According to Jonathan Goldman in the Public Domain Review, quote, In the days that followed, Parker's cronies who hung out in the Rose Room of the Algonquin Hotel made the firing and its fallout at Vanity Fair into a media scandal. The incident changed her career and stature, and its response helped forge the legend of what would eventually be called the Algonquin Roundtable. Of course, by this time, she went by Mrs. Dorothy Parker. In 1917, she had met an attractive Wall Street broker named Edwin Pond Parker, and the two quickly married, right before he shipped off to war. When he returned from the front lines, the Parkers moved to an apartment on West 57th Street, but it was clear that whatever fleeting attraction had existed before now had disappeared. Edwin was now an outsider, an alcoholic, and a morphine addict, with nothing in common with his wife's new companions. They divorced in 1928, yet she insisted on being referred to as Mrs. Parker decades after Edwin died in 1933. 
With each new poem or article, Dorothy Parker was defining a new way of writing and a new way of being a creative woman in a male-dominated industry. There were other women at the roundtable gatherings, like playwright Edna Ferber and journalist Ruth Hale, and other young New York women poets of note, like Edna St. Vincent Millay. What set Dorothy Parker apart was her sharp verbal style, which could easily be conveyed in printed verse. Her voice, we would call it today, sharpened against the talents of her friends at the round table or at gin and champagne-fueled parties afterwards. The round tablers worked with each other, gave each other writing jobs, and pretty much became New York's most famous clique, defining the fast pace of Midtown Manhattan during the Jazz Age. In parallel to the Black writers and artists of the Harlem Renaissance and the Bohemians of Greenwich Village. She rubbed shoulders with Harold Ross and Jane Grant, who kept pitching a magazine for a, quote, metropolitan audience. This whimsy, called The New Yorker, finally saw the light of print in 1925, with Ross declaring, it is not edited for the old lady in Dubuque. Parker would famously contribute reviews, poetry, and fiction to the magazine for decades. Her most famous quips would follow her through her lifetime. Men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses. Things like that. In the era before the internet and memes, she would be one of the most misquoted women in American history, with variations of every sharp retort ever spoken attributed to her. But if her poetry could sting, it could also bruise with reflections on life, love, and loneliness. Drink and dance and laugh and lie. Love the reeling midnight through. For tomorrow we shall die. But alas, we never do. Her voice was also shaped by pessimism about the world. Her first poem was published just a few months after the start of World War I. In addition to her husband, many of her close friends had seen the war firsthand. Others close to her died during the so-called Spanish flu pandemic of the late 19-teens. But as she got older, she eventually turned that pessimism to activism. She didn't know it at the time, but her life would change forever on April 15th, 1920, when two men were murdered during an armed robbery in Braintree, Massachusetts. Two Italian immigrants, Nicolas Sacco and Bartolomeo Vansetti, were convicted of the murders on scant evidence and a haze of anti-immigrant sentiment. The two were also anarchists, political views, which also influenced the verdict. For years, their fates were caught up in a string of legal appeals, and during that time, the world started paying attention. And so did Dorothy Parker. On August 10th, 1927, just before the scheduled execution of Sacco and Vensetti, Dorothy Parker and her fellow roundtable companion, Ruth Hale, joined a busload of New Yorkers on a trip to Boston in an effort to convince the governor to issue a reprieve. 
During a protest march, Parker was arrested by the police and escorted to the station as those in an angry crowd screamed curse words at this New York interloper. New York nut! Red scum! She eventually pled guilty and paid a $5 fine, but she remained devoted to this cause, accompanying Vansetti's sister to Boston when she arrived by ship. And Parker was there in Boston in the press room just after midnight on August 23, 1927, one day after her birthday, when Sacco and Vensetti were executed in the electric chair. Parker was forever changed by the experience, ever more engaged in social justice causes as the years went by. Meanwhile, during the Great Depression, she found another husband, the dashing writer Alan Campbell, introduced to Parker by her friend Robert Benchley. And in the 1930s, she found a new calling, Hollywood screenwriting. Dorothy and Alan moved to Beverly Hills and signed a deal with Paramount Pictures. For years, they were involved in mostly uninteresting projects. Although in 1935, Parker wrote the lyrics to a song that was used in the film The Big Broadcast of 1936, a song which became a major hit for Bing Crosby, I Wished on the Moon. Wished on the moon For something I never knew I wished on the moon or more than I ever knew A sweeter rose, a softer sky Or an April day That wouldn't dance away Their glittery Hollywood lifestyle, always with the cocktail in hand, was accompanied by a firmer determination by Parker to use her stature for social causes. She joined dozens of them, some might say too freely. She set up a committee and raised money for a defense fund for nine black teenagers in Alabama who had been falsely accused of raping two white women in 1931. The press called them the Scottsboro Boys. Parker helped to form a screenwriter's union and supported the union cause in all forms. As she used to say, quote, Now look, union is spelled with five letters. It is not a four-letter word. Seeing the rise of Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany and encouraged by the persuasive Czech journalist Otto Katz, Parker and other Hollywood names, including Oscar Hammerstein, formed the Hollywood Anti-Nazi League, Parker was one of Hollywood's leading anti-fascists, alongside new friends Dashiell Hammett, author of The Maltese Falcon, and his romantic partner and her future frenemy, Lillian Hellman. In 1937, a film that Alan Campbell and Dorothy Parker had worked on finally hit the big screen, a story of a rising starlet and her alcoholic Svengali a film which delivered them and co-writer Robert Carson Academy Award nominations. The movie, A Star is Born. Gentlemen of the Academy and fellow suckers, I got one of those once for a best performance. They don't mean a thing. People get them every year. What I want is a special award, something nobody else can get. I want a statue for the worst performance of the year. In fact, I want three statues. 
for the three worst performances of the year, because I've earned them. And every single one of you that saw those last masterpieces of mine knows that I've earned that very same year, 1937, the couple traveled to Spain during the years of the Spanish Civil War, inspired by Ernest Hemingway to get involved with anti-fascist movements there. She remained in Valencia during several air raids and later delivered a fiery message on Madrid radio against the forces of Francisco Franco. She then returned to Hollywood and began fundraising for the Aid Spain movement and even chaired the Spanish Children's Milk Fund. Her activism was escalating just as her screenwriting career was getting hot, a fact noticed by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. J. Edgar Hoover had opened a file on Dorothy Parker in the years following the Sacco and Vincetti affair, and by the 1960s, her FBI file was a thousand pages thick. At issue was Parker's proximity to the Communist Party, which had fueled many of the anti-fascist efforts of the 1930s. The persuasive Otto Katz, a man who inspired Parker's activism, was a Soviet agent. In many cases, the communist connections to such causes were shadowy, and Parker was either not aware or simply didn't care. It's never been proven that Parker herself was a member of the Communist Party, but that didn't stop suspicions lobbed at her, her husband, Lillian Hellman, and hundreds of others with connections to the movie business. Eventually, she became a pariah in Hollywood, although she was never actually called up by Joseph McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee, she was effectively blacklisted from ever working in Hollywood again. She returned to New York in the 1950s. She separated from Alan Campbell for many years, then they reconciled. He died in 1963. Dorothy Parker had become a legend. Many were actually surprised to hear that this sparkling wit of the Algonquin Round Table was still alive. That Dorothy Parker had become a sort of literary goddess. Yet the real Parker lived at the Volney on East 74th Street, surviving on royalties and a few writing assignments. And that other Parker was still there as well, as her social activism turned to the civil rights movement. If she was getting too old and too sick to join a protest, she could make a difference in another way. And so we return to her strange little funeral at Frank Campbell's Funeral Chapel on the Upper East Side, and to the reading of her will and the recipient of the estate, as stated on the document itself. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King of Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. King had never met Dorothy Parker, but expressed his gratitude upon hearing the news. He said, quote, I am not referring to the monetary aspect at all. What impresses and inspires me is that one of America's most respected and warmly loved women of letters felt so committed to the civil rights movement that whatever she had, she offered it. Our fight is strengthened by this commitment. On April 4th, 1968, less than 10 months after Parker died, 
Dr. King was assassinated at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee, sending the nation into mourning. Her will accounted for the possibility of this tragic event, and the estate of Dorothy Parker was then bequeathed to the NAACP. Lillian Hellman, however, was not happy. A writer as great as Parker herself could not have made up a story as unusual as what you're about to hear. The unexpected voyage of Dorothy Parker's remains after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Coda. There's little in taking or giving. There's little in water or wine. This living, this living, this living was never a project of mine. Oh, hard is the struggle and sparse is the gain of the one at the top. For art is a form of catharsis and love is a permanent flop. And work is the province of cattle and rests for a clam in a shell. So I'm thinking of throwing the battle. Would you kindly direct me to hell? 
I met up with Kevin Fitzpatrick at the Lambs Club at its present location near Rockefeller Center. The club was founded in 1874 for men of the theater, the walls adorned with oil paintings of former members and other memorabilia. The Lamb's famous roster of members has included Stanford White, George M. Cohan, and even Nikola Tesla. The Lambs Club. Now, was this Dorothy Parker would not have been a member of the Lambs Club, would she? No, they didn't <laughs> admit women till the 70s, mm. but a lot of the actors whose paintings are on the wall, she reviewed for Vanity Fair and The New Yorker. So there's a strong tie to Broadway and theater history here. There may not have been a lot of love for Dorothy Parker from no. some of these men if I, from some of the reviews that I read. Fitzpatrick has become the gatekeeper for Dorothy Parker's legacy and thanks to recent events, has now actually become part of her story. In the 90s, my friend Susie gave me a Marion Mead's biography of Dorothy Parker, which is still the best biography of Parker. And I was looking for a research project about books, history in New York to do online, which is still pretty new in 98. And so that became DorothyParker.com. Really researching the places related to Parker, primarily on the Upper West Side, Upper East Side. And within two years, the family found me. So Parker didn't have any children, but she had a niece. And the grandchildren of her niece, her grandnieces, are still around. They reached out to me in 2000 and became friendly with me, visited New York, took my tour, visited the Algonquin Hotel. And so what happened very quickly is I became this kind of go-to person just about Parker and the Algonquin Roundtable, which was super fun, great chance to have cocktails with some like-minded folks. In 1998, the year Fitzpatrick started his website, the remains of Dorothy Parker had already gone on quite a journey. 31 years earlier, her estate had been bequeathed to the NAACP, or the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, a civil rights organization which was founded in New York City in 1909. But this did not please Lillian Hellman, who had been put in charge of some of Dorothy Parker's affairs even when she was alive. So Parker and Hellman met in the 30s. And so, you know, they were East Coast liberals who were then living in California. They had very, you know, similar styles. And so when Parker moved back to New York, she really needed someone to take care of her. You know, her, her husband was deceased. She was living alone. And so Hellman kind of would set up things for her, you know, set up, you know, housekeepers or, you know, practical nurses and things like that. So Hellman was really looking to get paid and reimbursed for her her headaches of having to deal with Parker, whose health was breaking down in her 70s. Right after the funeral is when the will was read and she found out that she was cut out of the will. And so that's when she went ballistic. That's why she never claimed the remains from the crematorium in Hartsdale. That's why she never did anything to assist the state except sue them. So she sued the NAACP uh, in the late 60s and it was resolved in 1971 that she had no claim to any of the royalties. Now, Helen was certainly no fan of the NAACP, thinking them too conservative, in her view, and accusing Parker of blind sentimentality. But if you believe that suing the NAACP wasn't a good look, well, you may not like some of the other choices that Hellman proceeded to make. You couldn't have picked a worse executrix for your estate than Hellman, because she didn't do anything. She didn't put her in the ground. She didn't get her at a gravestone. She never reached out to the family. 
you know, the thing to Greg is um, people say to me, hey, where are Dorothy Parker's papers? Where is Dorothy Parker's stuff? Hellman threw it all on the street. You know, do you know where it is? It's uh, it was dumped in the garbage in the Upper East Side. She did a clean out. There's nothing. You know, there's no papers. There's no books. There's no photos. That all went into the garbage that was not sent to a university or something like that. And when Dorothy was cremated in Hartsdale, New York, Hellman never bothered to pick up her remains. And the will issued no instructions at all for the ultimate destination of those remains. So Parker sat on a shelf at the crematorium until 1973, when the facility shipped her remains to Parker's former attorney, Oscar Bernstein, and his law partner, Paul O'Dwyer. O'Dwyer had once been New York City Council president. He also just happened to be the brother of former mayor, William O'Dwyer. When Bernstein died in 1974, her remains just sort of hung around O'Dwyer's Wall Street law office in a filing cabinet until 1988. It was then that O'Dwyer finally decided that a filing cabinet next to some office supplies was probably no place for the remains of an iconic writer. So he enlisted New York Daily News columnist Liz Smith for suggestions, and a group of Dorothy Parker admirers gathered at the Algonquin Hotel to consider some possible ideas. Now, I quote here from the reporting of Lori Gwen Shapiro, who wrote about Parker's post-life adventures for Parker's former employer, The New Yorker. Quote, Liz Smith wanted the urn in a lighted vitrine in the Algonquin, but the manager declined to take it, saying it made him squeamish. An aviation company representative proposed sprinkling the ashes out of an airplane over the Hudson River. An artist said that he had developed a way to mix the ashes with oil and could paint Parker so she could live on as a portrait in perpetuity. A guest proposed that she be encased in a bar to honor her love of drinking. One inebriated brainstormer wanted to wrap the ashes in paper like cocaine and divvy them up among the crowd. O'Dwyer thought these suggestions macabre and inappropriate, unquote. But among the crowd was a man named Benjamin Hooks, the director of the NAACP, who suggested, not unrealistically, that her remains should perhaps go with the rest of the estate. But the organization had moved their national headquarters to Baltimore, a city that Parker had visited precisely once in her lifetime. And so Parker was again on the move to a specially designed memorial garden in reflection of her life, designed by Harry G. Robinson III. Parker was in an office park several miles outside of of Baltimore proper, so it wasn't really easy to get to if you're a tourist. They built a very nice, very tasteful memorial garden. It's surrounded by bricks, a round brick garden to evoke the round table, surrounded by pine trees. And so when you approach the garden, you're surrounded by pine cones and pine needles everywhere. It was a fitting home for Parker's remains so long as the NAACP stayed at this location. But during the years of the Obama administration, 
the NAACP considered moving offices again to Washington, D.C. That's when I reached out to NAACP and I said, hey, I am the Dorothy Parker Society working with the family. If you do sell your headquarters and move, please let us know. We would like to bring her back to New York City to be buried next to her parents and grandparents. The NAACP responded to me with letters from Julian Bond, great civil rights legend, who said, we will never forget Dorothy Parker, and we will be in in touch if anything ever changes. But the ball didn't really get rolling on Parker's eventual return to New York until Kevin once again met with her family in 2018 during the 100th centennial of the Algonquin Roundtable. Four years ago, the sisters visited New York and they said, Kevin, will you take us to visit our great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents who were Parker's family. So when we got to Woodlawn Cemetery and they saw it, they really were bereft. They really said, okay, now it's time. You know, we really need to, to get this done because they're older and they didn't want to pass this on to their children. And it really was when Woodlawn said, you know, we've done the research. Um, we know that Parker is the plot owner. We would welcome her to come here. You know, they waived all the fees, which was really wonderful. And so that was when I really doubled down on my efforts to get Parker brought back to New York. During the year 2020, a few things happened in the world, as you may remember. Pertinent to the story, though, lockdowns tied to the COVID pandemic temporarily put a hold on the family's plans to bring Parker's remains to the family plot at Woodlawn Cemetery. In June of 2020, the NAACP formally announced that they were moving their headquarters to Washington, D.C., and Fitzpatrick could finally go down to the Memorial Garden to retrieve her remains. Yes, you heard me. Kevin brought Dorothy Parker back to New York himself. Easier said than done, apparently. So then, how... Did the actual remains move, get from (laughs) there to the Bronx? Greg, you're the first person to ask me this. This is kind of amazing. Um. So I went down there, had a great couple of days in Baltimore. It was really nice. It was August uh, 2020. It was about a two-hour operation to get her out of the the ground. Um, I brought a box with me. Oh, Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what do you transport and earn it? Yeah, what kind of a box? Like a cardboard box? A shoe box? A, well, what? I was thinking, I, I've been thinking about this for many years. Like, well, when I get it, and I, I knew I wanted to take Amtrak back and forth because I love railroads, you're not going to bring her in a fresh direct bag. No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. Deeply disrespectful, fresh direct. So you had some challenges. Yes. Because this is something you've probably not been in this position before. No. I had actually never even seen an urn up close before. I was Uh looking at a photo. There's a photo in my book of the urn going into the ground, which is what we use to kind of go by, okay, this is what we think we're looking for under the earth. So I kind of like judged the size of the urn, and I built a pine box in my basement, Mm. stained it so it looked kind of classy, put that in a bag, and brought that down to put the urn in. So when the urn came out of the ground, um, it went right into the box. We screwed the box shut, and then we had a nice little graveside uh, ceremony, the NAACP. They brought the the rabbi came out, who actually had been there in 88. So we had about a 10-minute ceremony once the urn was out of the ground. The NAACP staff was there. And um, 
that was it. Then I took an Uber from the NAACP headquarters to the train station, boarded an Amtrak. Mrs. Parker got her own seat next to me. (laughs) I had brought with me a bottle of Dorothy Parker gin, a bottle of tonic, a lime, went to the cafe car, got some ice, and as soon as we left Maryland, it was gin and tonic time. (laughs) So we had a gin and tonic on top of the box and uh, got back to Penn Station, took an Uber home to my place in the Upper West Side. So we drove by a couple of Parker's um, houses. So she lived on West 80th Street, West 72nd. So we did kind of a zigzag. So Mm -hmm. she can get one more adios to the Upper West Side. (laughs) And then my poor wife, I had to say, hey, you know, I have Dorothy Parker's urn here. And after a couple of days, it was just like another part of the apartment. Like you didn't really think about this famous writer. I certainly thought about it when I had a cocktail and I'm looking right at it. I just couldn't believe it was over. I couldn't believe it was at this point because when I started DorothyParker.com, I had no idea I ultimately would be pulling her out of the ground, Mm -hmm. riding on a railroad car with her, riding around town in an Uber and having her in my apartment. Completely wacky. You know, I never, ever would have thought that. On the occasion of her birthday, August 22nd, 2020, Kevin brought the remains to Woodlawn Cemetery, where they were at last interred, not only in the same burial grounds as other literary greats such as Herman Melville, County Cullen, and Nellie Bly, but interred at long last with her family. Her parents are there and her maternal grandparents are there. Her mother and father have very nice headstones. Her grandparents are in unmarked graves, the Marstons, but there's two empty spots there. So we put her in the spot that's closest to her mom. Her mom died when Parker was four. Given Parker's own cavalier considerations of her own mortality, all of this might have seemed somewhat amusing to her. All that remained now was the acquisition of a gravestone with an epitaph. A decision, as you heard at the start of our show, Parker had some opinions on. The gravestone was financed by a campaign, which included the New York Distilling Company, makers of Dorothy Parker Gin, and the Al Hirschfeld Foundation. Hirschfeld being the New Yorker illustrator who frequently depicted Parker during her lifetime. But the choice of epitaph, many possibilities, many of Parker's own creation, both jokingly and otherwise, well, that was determined by her family. Well, you know, gravestones are decided by the family. So what I did is I presented all of them to the family, and they chose the one they liked the most. And the one that was chosen, it's very poignant because it mentions ashes and roses. And one of the things that I was worried about, because, you know, I've been to Perla Chase, I've been to cemeteries around the world, I, I really wanted to have a respectful gravestone and grave site, and not a place that's going to be like Fitzgerald, which I don't know if you've ever seen. It's covered in empty booze bottles, and it's very disrespectful. I wanted to have something tasteful, and what's been great since the it has been dedicated is people leave roses, which is really cool. So whenever I'm there, and I, I try to get every few weeks, people leave roses there, which is really nice. Leave for her a red young rose. Go your way and save your pity. She is happy, for she knows that her dust is very pretty. The 
this past weekend, I headed up to Woodlawn Cemetery and to the site of Dorothy Parker's new home on a plot near the northeast entrance of the grounds. I, maybe pretentiously, I brought a new copy of The New Yorker, which featured an illustration of Martin Luther King Jr. on the cover, which I mean, I was going to leave at the gravesite, but but it was very windy that day and that felt a little bit like littering. It was a poignant afternoon, but in a way superfluous because Dorothy Parker is everywhere. Her works remain in print. In fact, more so than they ever were during her lifetime. And just this year, January 1st, 2022, in fact, 47 of her poems enter the public domain, meaning that they can live on in new creative uses. And that includes her poem, Inventory. Four be the things I am wiser to know, idleness, sorrow, a friend, and a foe. Four be the things I'd be better without, love, curiosity, freckles, and doubt. Three be the things I shall never attain, envy, content, and sufficient champagne. Three be the things I shall have till I die, laughter and hope and a sock in the eye. A big thank you to Kevin Fitzpatrick of the Dorothy Parker Society for joining me on the show today who, among several books that he's written, have two that pertain to this particular episode that you should check out. The Algonquin Roundtable New York, A Historical Guide, and Under the Table, A Dorothy Parker Cocktail Guide. He's also a tour guide. He currently has a tour on Dorothy Parker's Upper West Side and will soon start a tour at Woodlawn Cemetery. Head to DorothyParker.com for more information. In addition, I would also like to thank Kimberly Weatherell for reading some of Dorothy Parker's poetry today. Please visit the Bowery Boys website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for many images, including, including my photographs of my trip up to Woodlawn Cemetery. The website will also feature links and sources that were used for this show. A cheers to those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com. That's Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. For just a small donation a month, you're helping us put the show together each month. You get some great audio goodies to go with that. There's also merchandise over there. For this week's special audio, I'll have the entire interview that I did with Kevin Fitzpatrick at the Lambs Club. I'm not kidding you. At one point, we had her will arrayed, pages of it arrayed on a billiard table. We went to some deep places. It was incredible. That's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.